You can go ahead and take out a Bible if you'd like and be turning to our first scripture of the night, which it will take us a while to get to, but it'll be in 1 Kings chapter 20 at the end of the chapter. 1 Kings chapter 20. In 1986, then First Lady Nancy Reagan introduced the Just Say No to Drugs campaign, Just Say No. And it was a wonderful slogan, idea, but as time went by, what eventually happened was that some aptly pointed out that you must do more than just simply tell kids to say no. You must teach them why to say no. You must teach them how detrimental it can be to them. But you must also teach them what to fill up their lives with instead of drugs. Little more than just say no. Well, you know, God has been in the process of doing that throughout the scripture. Not just simply telling us on occasion what not to do, but also telling us why and telling us what to fill our lives with as well, to put it in that place. For example, I'll just make a note of this. You don't need to turn there, but can if you want, but we're going to start in 1 Kings here eventually. This is similar to what God does in scripture. In Colossians chapter three, when he tells his children that they must say no or put off or put to death, those things such as fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language and dishonesty in Colossians chapter three, verses five through eight, he immediately goes on to tell them what they do need to fill their lives with instead. Get rid of these things, but replace these things with these. Put on instead in verses 12 through 15 of Colossians 3. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. So right there, we see that God says, okay, say no to these things, get rid of these things, but here's what you replace them with. And God does that quite often, did the same thing, in fact, in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, gives a, a, a little more of an abbreviated list of what we're to get rid of, but then tells us what we are to replace it with. But part of our strength to say no or to put off or away those bad things, those sinful things, those harmful things from our lives and replace them with good things instead comes from understanding how bad the bad things can be for us. Part of our strength and ability to say no to certain things in our lives comes to us when we understand how detrimental to our lives, to our happiness, to our peace, to our well-being, that those bad things are, how they can actually ruin us. So one of the most dangerous things amongst the whole list of dangerous things that we just read about in Colossians and I alluded to in Ephesians in both of those texts that are very similar 
there is a word there that it says that we must purge or say no to or get rid of out of our lives. And that is malice. Malice is so subtle, so sneaky. It can just get in the smallest little crevice in our head and, and it is so absolutely deadly. And so it helps us to understand when, when Satan is willing to get something in there that is detrimental to us and just, just, just kind of sneaky get it into our heads, like malice can so often work, it is strengthening to us to understand why to say no to that. It is strengthening to us to understand just how deadly, just how devastating something like that can be. And quite frankly, I do not think that I have ever heard a more powerful, a more poignant sermon in all of my life on the ins and outs and whys of the subject of malice than I heard at the Tilton Lectureship when I was there a couple of weeks ago from Brother Kevin Rhodes of the Brown Trail School of Preaching. Matter of fact, I was so inspired by it that I decided to go back and listen to it and take notes and preach a version of it here tonight. As you'll recall, the theme of the lectureship was the lives of Elijah and Elisha. I preached a couple of sermons here before I left. Mine were easy. <laughs> what are you doing here, Elijah? The whole case, I mean, that was, that was pretty easy. If you give that to a preacher, it's like, oh, that's cool, I can do that, right? Then the other one was go wash in the Jordan, which I preached here, the, the leprosy, and right? I mean, I thought, well, you know, you can make so many illustrations and baptism, and that's a pretty easy assignment. Brother Rhodes drew a tough assignment. His assignment was the malice of Ahab and Jezebel. I was glad I did not get that topic. That was a hard topic. They picked the right man for the job. Let me tell you what, I sat there and I just listened and I came to realize I don't ever want malice in my life. We can read through, we can read through Colossians and Ephesians where it says get rid of it. And it's just kind of a word there, but when you understand the intricacies of what it can do in your heart, you, you don't want that ever to be there. And so I decided, as I said, to preach a version of it, but I will tell you before I begin tonight, although I'm gonna use his very general outline, and though I'm going to repeat a significant number of his lines, you still need to go online if you want to hear this sermon in its fullness, its power, and its intensity and application because I will tell you right now, I do not believe I will come anywhere near presenting these thoughts as powerfully as he did. He entitled his notes very fittingly as The Path to Malice and that is so important. We talked about in James in the Wednesday night class, remember we talked in James chapter one how that idea gets planted and then it moves along and we think about it and it becomes action and we need to stop that process. Well, well malice is a, is a process too or has a process or a path to it. So in 1 Kings chapter 21, which we'll get to in a moment, we'll actually start reading in 20, but King Ahab had a problem. Just like David with Bathsheba, King Ahab wanted something that he could not have. That was his problem. The thing he wanted that he couldn't have was Naboth's vineyard. And something that I never realized prior to the lesson that Brother Rhodes gave was it was more than just a desire on Naboth's part to hang on to his vineyard. You know, he wouldn't sell it, and I'd always thought, well, he just didn't want to sell it. Well, there's a little more to it than that. 
The fact is that if you go back and look at the Levitical law regarding inherited property in a Leviticus 25:23, you will see that the land, if you're going to keep the law, the Levitical law, the land could not be sold permanently. He couldn't sell that land that was his by birthright and inheritance to the king. By law, he couldn't. It wasn't just he didn't want to, he couldn't sell that land permanently. Hence, Naboth was simply following the law. Naboth was doing the right thing. Sound familiar? Do the right thing and get you killed? Uh, Jesus? Yeah, okay. Naboth, simply following the law, which Ahab had no regard for anyway, which if you know the story of Ahab and Jezebel, you already know that. Yes, Ahab had a problem, but Jezebel had a solution. We see in the text, or we're going to see how he goes home pouting, sullen, displeased. I can't have what I want, right? Jezebel, I can fix that. She had a solution. And you know, in the end, Ahab would be guilty of murder. He may not have thrown a fatal stone, he may not have given the final command, but Ahab would be just as guilty as David. Was, was David held guilty for Uriah's death? Yeah, even though it happened a long ways away, David was held guilty. David was just as guilty as the, as the enemy that killed Uriah. Well, in this case, Ahab is, is going to be just as guilty. Naboth's death produced a victim as the direct result of malice. Think about that. You know, it's interesting if you Go and read our Lord's instructions in Matthew 5, 21 through 26 from the Sermon on the Mount. It's interesting, we see the same concept right there. What begins as malice often ends in murder. They, have, they come from the same root, according to Jesus in Matthew, again, chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. They're rooted in the same heart. That's why we're not to be angry with our brother. Anger and murder Malice and murder are rooted in the same heart. So as we will go through our story here in a minute, we'll see that Elijah comes on the scene, and Elijah's going to have a message for Ahab. You know what his message to Ahab's going to be? God knows. God knows what you did, and God's going to judge you for it. God knows. And it's that simple. You see, we've got to understand that's the path that malice lays out for us. This is the path down which malice takes us. It takes us to that inevitable end. That's why we must make sure that we never let malice get rooted in our heart, why we never let Satan sneak that in there. When we feel ill will towards someone, Brother Rhodes said, when we feel ill will towards them, wishing or seeking to perpetuate some form of loss or harm, or vengeance upon them, it doesn't have to be murder, that kind of vicious disposition toward them is malice. That's what malice is. Have you ever considered, as we speak about the path to malice, have you ever considered how Ahab got to the point he was at, right at the end of chapter 20 and into chapter 21? Have you ever considered how he got to this point emotionally? <laughs> Retail therapy. <laughs> Emotional spending. He wanted to buy something, quite likely, to make himself feel better. Why would Ahab want to feel better? Well, he'd want to feel better. 
don't tell me that nobody in this group has ever gone out and bought something just to make them feel better about themselves, okay? It happens, okay? And it would be easy to understand that that's probably what Ahab's problem was and why he wanted the vineyard. Consider his history. Consider why he's sullen and displeased and angry and upset. After he married Jezebel, he set up an altar to Baal. You know what God did? God sent a drought upon the land. Chapters 16 and 17, that's what happened. Marries Jezebel, got problems already, God's upset, drought upon the land. Then, God sent Elijah to confront him. King Ahab suffered a terrible defeat. All of these false prophets up on Mount Carmel, they get eliminated, chapter 18. Then in chapter 19, Jezebel goes on this unsuccessful hunt for Elijah. And in the meantime, God gives this great victory to Israel, chapter 20. Great victory to Israel. Gets, gets, gets the enemy right there, right where Israel can just eliminate him altogether. And guess what? Instead, Ahab makes a treaty with him. And God says, that's not why I gave him to you. God said, no, we have a problem. This is the problem, 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 42. The prophet says to King Ahab, thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. <laughs> Nothing's gone right for him. He has been frustrated at every turn as king. So he's been out there in battle, and now he's been told something he did not want to hear. He just did not want to hear it. And so he goes to his house pouting, pouting. The scripture says, sullen and displeased. Verse 43, the king of Israel went to his house, sullen and displeased. And he came to Samaria. It hasn't gone well for him. He's not real happy about anything. He's in a bad mood and now it's about to get worse. Do you know what he's gonna do now? He's gonna go to one of his subjects and say, I want your vineyard. Naboth says, nope. I'll buy it from you. Nope. Name your price. Nope. It's not getting any better. So he's pouting. Chances are pretty good that Naboth's reply pretty much reinforced his feelings of powerlessness. He couldn't force anybody to do what he wanted them to. And this gets to the root of where malice comes from. Brother Rhodes said, how easily emotions and attitudes can lead us to some very dark places. How easily emotions and attitudes can lead us to some very dark places. Ahab was already upset, he's angry, he's frustrated, and now Jezebel shoves him over the edge. She's gonna tell him, <laughs> she's, gonna, she's gonna set him up, she's gonna do what he hadn't considered doing himself, but he willingly still accepted. And that, and that tells us something else about malice. There's two kinds of malice. There's active malice, which Jezebel had, she was willing to do something about it. And there was passive malice, that was Ahab. He wasn't willing to go out and do what she did, but he certainly went along with it. His was passive, hers was active. You know, 
Ahab kind of liked what he was going to get out of the deal. Was he going to get what he wanted? He going to get the vineyard? Yeah, he's going to get he's going to get what he wanted. So, okay, hey, I got to kill somebody. That's okay. I didn't do it. You know, today we have a saying in the business world, the end justifies the means. God says, "No. In this case, the end does not justify the means." Not at all. Malice then is a combination of emotion and motive. It will justify almost anything for the sake of personal gain or satisfaction. Malice can be extremely subtle and it is extremely dangerous, even deadly. And nobody is immune from its allure and its influence. So then Brother Rhodes went on to make five points about malice. The first of those five points which we glean from this story come from 1 Kings 21, verses 1 through 5. And that point is this. Malice plays on a lack of contentment. Point number one, verses 1 through 5. Malice plays on a lack of contentment. Let's read the first five verses. It came to pass after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for vegetable garden because it is near next to my house, and I'll, I'll give you a vineyard better than it. Or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its worth in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. Comes back to that Levitical law. So Ahab went to his house sullen and displeased. We just saw that in verse 43. He's still sullen, upset, frustrated. Can't, can't even get his subjects to do what he wants them to do, right? So he went to his house sullen and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab lays down on his bed, turns away his face, would eat no food. You ever had a child I gotta say this, you ever had a child that was just so angry at something they just, they just, they're not gonna eat and I'm not gonna listen and they just lay on their bed, well, that's what's going on. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? What a concerned wife, huh? What a caring lady. Brother Rhodes at this point said, remember, you can have someone who has malice in their heart but still behaves in normal ways otherwise. It is the direction of their motivations that is the problem. She behaved like any caring wife. What, what's the matter? What's the problem? So the whole problem here with Ahab and now with Jezebel is one thing and one thing only. I did not get what I want. When, you, when what you want becomes more important to you than what is right, then malice is right around the corner. When what you want becomes more important than what is right, malice is right around the corner. It breeds a lot of arrogant assumptions, such as the assumption of personal importance. Look at who I am. What did Jesus say about that? In Mark 10, 45, he said, son of man, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. It's just the opposite of the assumption of personal importance. 
It also brings the assumption of the desired outcome. Here's what I expect you to do to conform to my wishes, and if you don't, I'm going to be upset. While by contrast, what did Jesus say? Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Everything Jesus taught was against this. It also carries the assumption of my personal rights. This is a big deal today. I have the right. What did Jesus say about that? Luke 9, 23 and 24, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Along with this also comes the assumption that other people's motives and reasons are the same as mine. And, and this is one that we really need to just think about for a minute. How do most of us define normal? Probably by who we are, right? But we're all different, so how does that work? The assumption that other people's motives and reasons are the same as mine. Please notice verse three. In verse three, did money matter to Ahab? Seems to have. Money mattered to him, but you know what? Not only did money matter to him, but the law of God didn't. And so, why not offer Naboth money? Money means the most to everybody, more than anything else, or at least that's the way Ahab thought, but you see, his assumption that everybody thought like him, and, and that he could just have this vineyard, and, and that the law didn't mean anything, and money meant everything. See, not everybody's made the same, so we need to be careful to understand that other people's motives and reasons are not always the same as ours. In 1 Timothy 6.10 it says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which many have strayed from the faith. Malice then involves a failure to consider other people's points of view as being just as valid as my own. Something the Bible says we must do is consider others first, Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Malice stirs up immature emotions in us because we want something so much that we, we treat failing to get it like a human tragedy. Look at verse 4. It was a human tragedy because he had made this so important. Most of us who are adults understand, and, and some of our young people do too, but we understand that not getting everything we want in life is a pretty common thing. Anybody in this room has always gotten everything you wanted in life? Please raise your hand. Hmm, that's kind of what I thought. It's a pretty common thing. You can't get everything you want. However, dealing well with that is something that is becoming less and less common in our world, isn't it? When people don't get what they want, handling that does, is not something that, is, that, is, that people handle well. But in the church, we should be different than the world, right? Not my will, but thine be done. We're not always, none of us are ever gonna have things the way we want everything. It's just not gonna happen. When it is only about what we want, we can become so overwhelmed with self-pity when we don't get it that we just don't think right anymore. Ahab was sullen and displeased. He was frustrated and angry and engulfed in his own self-pity. Just wasn't thinking right anymore. Contrast that with what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4 and verse 11 when he said, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. You see the contrast? Brings us to the second of Brother Rhodes' five points regarding malice, which we gleaned from the story. Verses 6 and 7. 
Malice feeds off of pride. Malice feeds off of pride. Look at verses 6 and 7. He said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else if it pleases you, I'll give you another vineyard. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Then Jezebel, his wife, said to him, you now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, let your heart be cheerful. I'll give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. He had to know what that entailed. Think about it. Malice convinces you that others are not as important as you are, or even important at all, and that they therefore should not even be considered. Again, Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Another news flash that's not really news to any of us. It's not about any of us when it comes to the church. It's not about you. It's not about me. It is not about any single one of us. Not one single one of us bought the church with our blood. Not one single one of us paid for, single-handedly built, or is totally responsible for the Lord's church and her spiritual health, growth, and well-being. Not a single one of us. Nope. Instead, it's about all of us working together, working as one in the one body of Christ under the one head who is Christ. Isn't that right? Working under him. It's about all of us. Different parts of the body working together. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Brother Rhodes said, malice goes to seed when you act upon what you have the power to do rather than what you ought to do, as we see in verse 7. It is a sinful sense of superiority which allows people to justify malice within their own minds Luke 16 15 we have got to make sure that other people's souls are more important to us than just simply getting what we want no matter what did you know that in the end pride can make you happy about your own malice think about that pride can make you happy about your own malice can get to a point where we're not just okay with our malice. We're not just simply all right with it. But we can actually be joyful about our malice as we wrongly destroy the innocent in the process. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. What is she saying in effect? Be cheerful. Be happy. I'm plotting a murder. Is that what it's coming down to? That's exactly what it's coming down to. Why, why can we get happy about our malice? Why can we say, hey, don't worry about it. Be cheerful. Be happy. I'll, I'll, I'll kill him. Here's why. Because malice restores our sense of power and control over and at another's expense. And the reason that malice is so dangerous is we can all be susceptible to it if we're not careful. That's why we need to guard so much against it. Brings us to the third of Brother Rhodes' five points regarding malice, which we gleaned from the story. Verses 8 through 15, malice treats others as enemies. Malice treats others as enemies. Verses 8 through 15, she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. And she wrote in the letters saying, proclaim a fast, seat Naboth with high honor among the people, and seat two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him, saying, you have blasphemed God and the king. 
and take him out and stone him that he made. Hey, perfect solution. I mean, all we got to do is lie about the guy, charge him with something, and, and kill the innocent. So the men of the city, the elders, the nobles who were inhabitants of the city, did as Jezebel had said to them. As it was written in the letters which she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast, seated Naboth with high honor among the people, and two men, scoundrels, came in, set before him. The scoundrels witnessed against him, against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. Then he took him outside the city and stoned him with stones so that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And it came to pass... When Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. <laughs> for Naboth is not alive, but dead. Wow. And, and did you notice in verse 15, this is, this is so incredible. Did you notice in verse 15 how she made Naboth the enemy? All he's doing is what God had told him to do, keeping the land, the inheritance law, and all of that. And she makes Naboth the enemy. That's how she justified what she did. Brother Rhodes said there are several insights we get into the sinful world of malice from this reading. Let me give you four. Number one, malice reveals itself in the harm we are willing to inflict on another, verses 8 through 10. Number two, malice often makes itself known in the form of false charges which we are willing to fabricate about and level at others. Verses 9 through 13. You remember what the scribes and Pharisees did to Jesus? They sought false witness. Same thing. Number three, malice convinces us to punish our problems or the people who represent them instead of sitting down and solving them. It punishes our problems and therefore intensifies our anger in order to justify our wrath, at least in our own minds. Number four, malice devalues others while overvaluing, overvaluing things, verses 11 through 14. Malice treats other people as obstacles to our own success. They're standing in our way. And in the end, we falsely, but still fully convince ourselves that others actually deserve our malice. Do you think for a moment, scripture doesn't say, put yourself there for a minute, don't you think that Jezebel in her mind justified that Naboth got what he deserved? The guy that wouldn't sell it to you, he's the bad guy. In the end, we falsely convince ourselves that others deserve our malice which is just exactly the opposite of everything that Jesus Christ, our Lord, came and said and did and taught and preached and lived and died for. It goes against everything. Brings us to the fourth point regarding malice, which we gleaned from the story. Malice will be judged by the standard of God's word. Malice will be judged by the standard of God's word, verses 16 and following. So it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up, went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Don't forget that verse, we're coming back to it. Verse 17, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise and go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord. Notice, 
judged according to the word of God. Thus says the Lord, have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him saying, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. So Ahab says to Elijah, have you found me, my enemy? And he answered, I found you because you sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I'll take away your posterity. I'll cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I'll make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dogs will eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dogs will eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air will eat whoever dies in the field. But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. He behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. Did you notice where Naboth was in verse 16? I'm sorry. Did you notice where Ahab was in verse 16? Ahab got what he wanted. Now he's about to get what he deserves. Think about that. His moment of victory has now become his moment of judgment. And you know, we, you and I, none of us, we cannot just look at somebody and say that's a malicious person. We cannot do that. We cannot see the heart. We cannot read the heart. But God can. God knows our hearts. Is that right? God knows my motives. He knows your motives. Is that right? Is that fair? God knows our hearts and our motives. He will judge our motives. When we stand before God in judgment, he's going to judge our motives, not our self-justification of those motives. Our justifications may sound extremely good to us, but God knows the difference between our actual motives for doing what we do and our own self-justifications. Matthew 23. Did you know that malice, this, it's, it, this is like handling deadly poison. Did you know that malice, like any other sin, has consequences? I mean, we see them here, but, but you know in some of those, those sin lists in the New Testament, that malice is right there with, with other terrible, awful things that are going to be, for example, keep your finger here, but turn to me to Romans chapter 1 for just a moment. This is... Scary, scary stuff. And Satan just loves it when he can get malice to just start to sprout a little in our hearts. Look in Romans 1, 28. It says, and we know Romans 1, we, we talk about it, about, you know, all of these terrible things that people are doing, and, and we use it for a lot of other reasons other than some of the sins that we commit. But, but, but look, at, look at what it actually says. It says in verse 28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness. There it is. Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. We use this and we say, well, 
you know, I'm not guilty of sexual immorality or, or I'm not guilty of murder. I have never killed anybody or, or, or I'm not guilty of a lot of these things, but you know the only thing that separates malice and envy and strife from haters of God, you know the only thing that separates them? Commas. That's it. And that, so this is this a real, real powerful and deadly and destructive thing. And we need to be aware of that and not just read over it like, just say no. God's telling us here in this story why and, and how harmful it can be. You know, in a world where there's so much blatant sin all, all around us, we can easily forget the dangers posed by what lies within us. We can easily convince ourselves sometimes that, that just because a sin is hidden, maybe malice that's hidden, and we keep it hidden really, really well, that maybe it'll be undetectable. But you know, to God, nothing is undetectable, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. And that brings us to actually the beauty, the last of Brother Rhodes' five points regarding malice that we glean from this story. And I am so grateful, so grateful for this one. Point number five, malice can be forgiven. Isn't that awesome? Isn't God awesome? Even when we get our hands so dirty, and with that or any other sin, it's not just this one, with that or any other sin, it can be forgiven. Look at, look at this in verses 27 through 29. So it was when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth on his body, and he fasted and lay in sackcloth, and he went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I won't bring this calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. Now, God was still upset. There's no doubt about it. But we gotta understand, there is mercy even for malice because of the blood of Jesus. And, and that mercy is all about our response when the word of God is brought to bear. When the word of God was brought to bear on Ahab, he, he had a response, he, he humbled himself. He tore his clothes, he, he repented, he put on sackcloth, he fasted, he lay in sackcloth, he went about mourning. Ahab was willing to just absolutely humble himself before God Almighty when the word of God was brought to bear. And because he heard there was mercy, he wanted that mercy from God. And the beauty is that this is the change that true repentance make. It humbles the guilty. It changes their minds and actions in order to receive the mercy offered. Brethren, God is so good. We can be forgiven. Isn't that awesome? Of any sin, not just this one, but this one too. So in conclusion tonight, a few things. The path to malice is a lot shorter then many of us might like to think, you know, I don't want to think that I would ever be malicious. I don't want to think anybody would ever be malicious. But the fact is that malice, the path to it, is, is a little shorter. And we've seen the outline here of how it works. If we have ever been wronged, everybody in here has probably been wronged. If you've ever been wronged, then probably you've at least been tempted to think or to act maliciously. 
to respond maliciously in a way you shouldn't. Everybody's tempted to do that. When we read this chapter, though, and we, and we really consider it, we, we might like to all put ourselves, if we're going to say, you know, sometimes the scriptures say, well, I don't put myself in the place of so-and-so, and we might like to read this chapter and say, well, you know, I, I'm going to put myself in the place of Elijah. I, I think of myself like Elijah. I'm going to, you know, go and tell the way things work here, and, and we might like to do that. Or we might like to put ourselves in the place of Naboth. Maybe as I've read this tonight, or as I've read it to myself earlier, maybe put myself in the place of Naboth. You know, I'm going to do what's right, and, and you know, if, if I get punished for it, so, and we kind of like to do that, but Brother Rhodes made a, a stark point. He said, if you're really going to come to understand just how subtly and powerfully and destructively malice gets in and takes a hold of the unsuspecting, then the person that we need to picture ourselves as is either Ahab or Jezebel. We don't like that, but really. We've got to picture ourselves as one of them to get the full point of why malice is so bad. He also said none of us as human beings are above allowing what we want to influence what we do. We can allow our pride and desires to justify harshness and mistreatment of other. we can also, others. We can also let petty disputes turn into major battles, but the beauty of God's plan is that even those can be forgiven. Brother Rhodes went on to wind up his lesson with an incredibly powerful, poignant, fitting application of it for the entire church of our Lord to take to heart and understand, but I'm going to leave his conclusion for you to go listen to if you choose to. In the meantime, I just want to end this lesson tonight by saying this. When we read texts like Romans chapter 1, 28 through 32, which we did, Ephesians 4, 31 and 2, which I alluded to, and Colossians 3, 5 through 15, wherein we are told that as Christians we must say no to malice and all unrighteousness, then hopefully by really looking at 1 Kings 21, we have a much greater insight as to why we must say no to malice. We have a greater insight hopefully as to the path that leads to malice, as to the things malice can lead us to do, and ultimately to the judgment and condemnation it will also lead us to if we do not either avoid it altogether or repent of it immediately when detected at all cost. I appreciated the prayer earlier that Sam talked about the Lord's word tonight, and I just, as I listened to that lesson, I thought, man, that is, that is, that's really bad stuff. We don't want any that or any other bad stuff in our hearts. So I wanted to warn you of the dangers tonight, and I'll just read over it and say, don't, don't, you know, don't do this and this and this and this, this is why. God's so good, he told us why, he told us what to fill our lives with, so let's do that. Tonight, if you are here, you need the prayers of the church to help you be stronger in the good things. Maybe you're having something that you're struggling to get rid of. God wants you to replace it with the good stuff because that's beneficial to you. Or if you've never been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, we would love to see a new baby born into Christ tonight. If you have a need that we can help you with tonight, whatever it is, humble yourself and ask for the help that you need as we stand and sing.